Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. For most of us, self-control really depends on forming productive, effective habits because so many of the important outcomes in our lives require repeated behavior. Right. You can't study once and become a thoracic surgeon. <laughs> you can't eat salad for lunch once and be a healthy person. You can't save your money, this paycheck and no other, and be solvent. I mean, it just, it doesn't work that way. Life outcomes require repetition. That is Dr. Wendy Wood, Provost Professor of Psychology at the University of Southern California, and the author of the bestseller, Good Habits, Bad Habits. In today's podcast, Dr. Wood will be talking about the critical skill of being able to intentionally develop habits that are in our best interest, and how self-control and discipline, though appealing and part of the fabric of our just-do-it culture, are in fact a poor long-term solution for obtaining great results in anything we do. In this podcast, Dr. Wood tells us how our habits live in our second self, a deeper part of our subconscious world that runs a massive part of our lives without our awareness. Dr. Wood shares how to consciously and deliberately set up this second self with habits that will give us the cognitive freedom and bandwidth to fully engage in the things that are mission critical to our personal and professional lives. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Our guest is Dr. Wendy Wood. And guess what? We're talking about habits, how habits work, how habits are formed, and how critical habits are to living a healthy life, a rewarding life, and to being our best selves. The process of habit development is at the core of my concept of the Resilience Bank Account, a set of nine scientifically backed habits that if practiced regularly 
will lead to compound growth in our ability to be our best selves in and out of the operating room, no matter what. Dr. Wood is a provost professor in the Department of Psychology and the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. So what is a provost professor at USC, you might ask? Well, it's someone who is an outstanding interdisciplinary scholar who contributes to the university by attracting excellent faculty and graduate students while adding significantly to the culture of interdisciplinary research and education. Now, the significance of her appointment as a provost professor is highlighted by the fact that there are only 15 provost professors at USC currently, and Dr. Wood is one of them. Dr. Wood obtained her PhD in psychology from the University of Massachusetts and then joined the faculty at Texas A&M University, where she was the Ella McFadden Professor of Liberal Arts. In 2004, she moved to Duke University as a James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience, and where she was also the co-director of the Social Science Research Institute. And in 2009, she joined the faculty of the University of Southern California. Over the course of her 30-year academic career, Dr. Wood has published over 100 scientific articles, and she has received numerous awards for research and teaching. And for the past 30 years, her research has been continuously funded by the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, and the Templeton Foundation. I first encountered Dr. Wood when I discovered her fabulous book, Good Habits, Bad Habits. There are a lot of books on habits out there, and I've read most of them but Good Habits, Bad Habits has the dual distinction of actually being based on science and of being well-written, cogent, and actionable. Dr. Wood, welcome to the Resilient Surgeon Podcast. It is an honor to have you join us. Oh, that was a lovely introduction. Thank you, Michael. That was super. Well, so first question, you know, how did you get into the habit business? Well, I didn't start out um, thinking I was going to spend my career studying habits. I started out studying attitude change, how people change their attitudes and beliefs. And there are some great models from psychology to understand how people do this. But what started to interest me is that we can change people's attitudes and beliefs if we do it right. but that doesn't always translate into changing their behavior. So, for example, many of us know we should eat more fruits and vegetables, we should exercise more, we should sleep more at night. We know we should do these things, we've been convinced. But actually getting us to do it is another thing. So there's something else there, right, that is persisting beyond just what we think or believe or want to do. And that's what got me interested in habit, is Mm. trying to understand what it is that gets behavior to stick, even Mm. when sometimes we don't want it to. Right, even when we don't want it to. Yeah, that's right. Boy, I can can relate to that. Well, so, you know, the one of the one of the great features of your book is you you really separate out our conscious world as compared to what you call our second self and i'd love you to elaborate on that because it's it's a foundation of really understanding the the business of habits and how they work well so we think of our brains as kind of a unified whole. They're a thing, 
right? That is part of us, helps us do things. We know it's the source of most of our thoughts and feelings, but our brains aren't actually unified in that way. In fact, the human brain evolved sort of in fits and starts across our evolutionary history so that we gained some functions, we lost some over time through evolution. And the end result is that we have an interconnected network of brain systems that can work somewhat separately as well as in uniform and in a unified way. And habits are a part of our mental system that we don't have access to in the same way that we have access to our feelings, to me knowing what your name is, to me being pleased to be here. All of those things are part of my conscious experience. And, and I, I can feel them quite, you know, I'm, these things come to mind. I know that they're there, but habits are different. Habits are a part of our mental processing that isn't accessible to consciousness. And that's why I call it a second self. It's part of the non-conscious, the unconscious processing, not Freud's motivated unconscious, but the unconscious that keeps us repeating behavior in the same way that we did in the past. And habits actually have a pretty good logic to them. They're very, they're really very effective because what a habit does is it's a learning mechanism. And when you repeat a behavior over and over and get a reward in a particular context, then your brain starts to connect. It starts to form associations between where you are, time of day, other people, and what you just did to get that reward. So that the next time you're in that situation, the response just comes to mind automatically. It's mm -hmm. activated by mm -hmm. the situation. You don't have to try to come up with what to do next. If you have a habit, it's just there. So it's really very functional. It's very effective. And it's a way of us getting rewards that we've gotten in the past. Of course, <laughs> once habits have formed, this is the, the, the awkward part about them. Because they're very slow to form, it takes a lot of repetitions, they're also very slow to change. And even if you decide that something's not all that rewarding and you wish you weren't doing it, that habit association is still there to guide your behavior. And you have to actually... Yeah, whether you like it or not. Yes. Yes. Yeah. To not do it. You, you make, you make, uh, you, you said in the book, uh, they're like admin files in a computer. And I mean, God, I couldn't go and get an admin file out of my computer if my life depended on it. And, and so I think that's really a great analogy to what these habits are. They lurk in the, in the bowels of our brain, if you will, you know. 
Yeah, that we don't have access to them, which is a good thing most of the time, right? right? Because it keeps us knowing how to drive a car, knowing how to make coffee in the morning, even if we're distracted, even if we're really stressed, if we're in a hurry, we still know how to do these things because we're sort of on that autopilot of habit. And that's really helpful most of the time. I was just going to say one of my favorite examples of making coffee is um, one of my favorite examples of habits is making coffee in the morning. <laughs> but I get up, I stand in front of my coffee maker in the kitchen, and I just make coffee. I don't ask myself how to do it, because I know. I've done it so many times before. But I don't even ask myself if I want coffee this morning. I just do it because that's my habit. That's the pattern. That's what physiologically, mentally, behaviorally, I've trained my body to expect. So it's what I do. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about the neurobiology of what's going on? Just a brief summary of the, of the different elements of the brain involved uh, in habit formation versus consciousness and intention and willpower. Yeah. So when you repeat a behavior over and over, you're actually shifting the systems that are activated in your brain. When you first perform a behavior and are making decisions about what to do, then prefrontal areas are active, the hippocampus is active, if you're navigating particularly, um, making a decision where to go. You repeatedly do that over and over again, and the systems that are active shift so that it is what, what is called the sensory motor system that becomes activated over time to control our habits. And that's parts of the basal ganglia, the putamen in particular, um, the striatal areas, all of those come to be activated to support repetition. And this was shown in a lovely meta-analysis done a couple of years ago by Barbara Knowlton and Tara Patterson with a whole range of tasks, different tasks that start off being more deliberate, thoughtful, things you have to make decisions about. You repeat them often enough, start doing them habitually, and then the neural systems supporting that activity associated with that activity mm -hmm. shift. Well, now, you know, I, as you may know, I, I kind of grew up in very bad circumstances and I was able to, quote, pull myself up by the bootstraps and become a, a successful thoracic surgeon. And so I was, uh, to put it mildly, uh, a big believer in the sense of agency and that, you know, I was in control of all this and it was by sheer willpower and, and hard work and so forth that I managed to succeed. But of course, as I reflect back now, I mean, I developed study habits and, you know, I did all these things that required the effort up front. But can you explain why that is actually an illusion in this circumstance? I don't want to argue that your success 
is no, an the, illusion. The, it's clearly something the, that you <laughs> merit. Yeah, not my success. <laughs> my sense that it was all me and that I had the willpower that was the damn engine behind the whole thing. <laughs> well, you know, you might have been. And, and that's my point, is that some people actually do function that way mm -hmm. so that they are exerting effortful self-control a lot of the time. But most of us aren't. Most mm -hmm. of us don't function that way. And for most of us, self-control really consists of knowing how to form productive effective habits i just want you to repeat that Re repeat that this is such a critical phrase for most of us self-control really depends on forming productive effective habits because so many of the important outcomes in our lives require repeated behavior Right. You can't study once and become a thoracic surgeon. Right. <laughs> you can't eat salad for lunch once and be a healthy person. You can't save your money this paycheck and no other and be solvent. I mean, it just it doesn't work that way. Life outcomes require repetition. And self-control, our ability to effortfully control our behavior, is very powerful in the short run. It's not built, though, for endurance. Self-control wanes over time. Our commitment wanes over time. This is why it's so hard for people to change their diet and lose weight, is that most of us focus on the outcome. And we'll do anything to lose those few pounds. And we're not training ourselves to eat differently. We're not training ourselves to exercise more, to choose different foods, eat smaller portions, eat, quit snacking. That's not the focus. The focus is, mm -hmm. let me lose a few pounds, however I do it. And ultimately, if you're not learning new behaviors, new eating habits, then you fall back into what you've done before your old habits my let me give you a uh, research example of this that i think is uh -huh. um very helpful for people um most people have heard about walter michelle's marshmallow test with mm -hmm. four-year-olds where you give a four-year-old one marshmallow, say, if you can hold off eating it for 15 minutes, I'll give you two. And of course, most four-year-olds can't do this. They don't have the self-control. There are a few who can. And those few actually do succeed in life better than the average person who can't. And Michelle really focused, and the media really focused on that finding as being right. important. That and suggesting that yeah. there's some sort of innate or early onset self-control that some people have that others don't. Um, but there was another condition in Michelle's research that got very little attention in popular press, but I think is more important. And that is, 
In this other condition, Michelle's research assistant simply put a pie tin on top of that one marshmallow and said to the kid, look, you can eat it. Lift up the tin if you want to. You can eat it anytime you want to. But, you know, if you wait the 15 minutes, then you get two. The majority could wait if it was simply covered. And what that shows is that self-control is so much a part of not just who we are, but how we organize our environments and how what, what the behaviors are that are easy or difficult in the environments that we're in, which is how, what I think people who score high in self-control are good at doing. They're managing their environment, organizing yeah. their environment yeah. to be able to repeat the right behaviors to meet their goals. So that that's crucial. So we've got we've got our second self, that hidden part in our brain that is running on automatic pilot, essentially the habit the habit uh, house, if you will. We've got our conscious intention, willpower, all of that. The just do it thing of Nike, right? That that and the implications of that are unfortunate on our society and in, in my opinion i think yours too because it suggests it all is wrapped up in, in willpower and self-control and then we've got this big monster called the environment or context right yeah so uh you know and in some and i i thought of a, a metaphor for all of these things or a couple of, and see what you think in, in a way, I see it as, as sort of like we're, we're a house. Each of us is sort of like a house. And we have the upstairs where the lights are on and the heat is coming in and we're comfortable and we're running around and we're cooking, doing whatever. And we have control over that little bit of environment and the stimulus that's in it. And the basement's where the furnace and the wiring and all that stuff is. And that's where the habits are housed. And, and depending upon how well the things in the basement are working is going to determine how the lights are on and everything in your house upstairs and how you're functioning. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to go out into the outside world, you know, so the outside world impact on your house. So there, I think that's a, a nice metaphor for the whole thing. And the outside environment can have a big role on how everything works inside too. So that brings us to context. And you, you use the words, you know, context or environment. We, we enter a, you said a force field. When, whenever we go out into the world or even into our home, what, what do you mean by that? And can you talk about the, the, the friction or driving forces too that are so important in habit creation? Yeah, so this comes from a um, very influential psychologist, Kurt Lewin, who believed that human behavior is subject to force fields, as you say, just like the physical environment. We see fields, gravity. We see um, we see forces that create, or in the case of friction, inhibit movement. And Lewin applied this to understand human behavior, and argued that many of the forces that are driving our behavior are internal there are motives and desires there are beliefs there are habits mm -hmm. but many of them are also external to us and we tend to 
just like we overlook our habits, we tend to overlook many of those external forces. And the external forces can make it easier for you to do some things, or they can be like friction in the natural world and make it harder. So a couple of my favorite studies, mm -hmm. one was done with um, cell phones. And we know our cell phones are being tracked all the time. Mm -hmm. um, this was a study done by a data analytics firm that tracked thousands of people for a couple of months, or they tracked their cell phones, to see how far they traveled to a paid gymnasium. Right. And what the cell phone data revealed is that if people traveled about three and a half miles to a paid fitness center, they went five times a month on average. If they traveled 5.1 miles on average, they only went once a month. Now that has nothing to do with what we think drives us to go to the gym, right? Right. You go to the gym because you're concerned about fitness. You have great self-control. I go because I want to look nice. Um, I mean, it's all personal motivation is the way we think about things. But in fact, once you start observing people's behavior, you realize, oh, wait a minute. Friction is involved too. If you can take that visit to the gym and somehow integrate it with other things you're doing during the day, stop by on your way home from work, go on the way to the grocery store, however you can do that, or if you have a gym really close by, you're much more likely to go. That's friction. And removing friction is the key to development of good habits as much as possible. Sure is, because yeah. friction will help Removing friction will help you repeat the behavior. So, and the more often you repeat it, the stronger your habit will be. Yeah. I mean, a simple example from a dietary perspective, if, if there's no chips in the cupboard, I got to get up off my rear end and go to the store to get chips. I mean, that's, that's a major amount of friction for some chips. But then the, the converse is true. Proximity can lead to bad habits, right? Exactly. And there is good research on this too. There was a meta-analysis done on distance and eating. Mm -hmm. And again, we think we eat what we like, we eat when we're hungry, but instead how far food is from you is another important contributor to how much you eat. In one study, people who had apple slices close to them on a desk, and butter popcorn further away ate a third fewer calories than people who had the buttered popcorn close to them and the apple slices far away. <laughs> Something as simple as that has an influence, right? I mean, it's just amazing. Wild? <laughs> yeah. And then also the portions on a plate, you know, I mean, just, just increasing the portions on a plate causes people to eat more, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I oh my God, how many years did I watch in the doctor's lounge with the tray of donuts and bagels and they come in again and again look at the tv tara i'll just have one bite right and they tear off one and it feels a little better but then they come back and they tear off another bite and before you know it the day is you know they've consumed a donut or two yeah yeah it's it's really <laughs> substantial so friction 
removing friction, proximity, and then another one that you mentioned are rip currents. And I thought that was a, a great analogy for the force that other big things in our lives can play, like the people we're around or the, you know, the, the place we work, that sort of thing, where our desk is. Can you, can you kind of elaborate on that concept? Yeah, this is an idea from Todd Rogers that some of the decisions and the behaviors that you engage in have long-term sort of cumulative effects. So you donate money to the Sierra Club, then all of a sudden they're calling you all the time and mm -hmm. you put a sticker up in your window maybe in your car, supporting the Sierra Club. And then your neighbor starts to talk to you about it. And then all of a sudden, you're involved in environmental initiatives that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't started with that small trigger of just donating money to the group. And a lot of our life is like this, right? Mm -hmm. You do one thing, and then that puts you in a current where you continue to do similar sorts of things because it changes your opportunities. It changes the environment and the people, as you say, around you. And those people can have a huge influence on your habits. <clears throat> yep. Outsized proportion, yeah. Now, you also said, uh, and I, th I think this is beautiful. So if, if, and just to reiterate, what we have agency over is in the immediate world that we're experiencing. And we may have agency. I mean, we do have agency in making decisions as we are going along. We go out and see the donut. We may or may not eat it. We have that agency. But that's a constant struggle, right? I mean, you're just battling every... If, if you don't have habits, what you're doing is battling the environment at large and your, and your mind, right? Exactly. Because it's all possible. As you say, it's always possible to pick up that donut. It's always yes. possible to go down to the vending machine and buy some candy. It's always possible to say yes to the person in your, your office next to you who's offering you cookies. I mean, it's always possible if you don't ever have it. And as, as Mark, Mark Twain said, you know, I quit smoking, you know, hundreds of that quitting smoking is easy. I've done it hundreds of times, but he, he, he wasn't able to keep going. And, and therein is, you know, the, the, the sort of mental tragedy that we experience, at least in America. I mean, and that is, you know, the sense of self-defeat and inadequacy uh, driven to some extent by the just do it mindset, you know, that, that uh, is promulgated in this country. And, you know, it's all, we always kind of seem to come back to, well, you know, you just did them with the willpower, you're not strong enough, you're not disciplined enough, but uh, we are all prone to the forces of this. And it was so nice the way you said, forgive yourself, you know, you're a human being, These, this is the way the brain works. There's no reason to judge yourself because of the quote failures, remove the friction, get rid of the friction, set the right driving forces, you know, like putting the apple out instead of whatever, and let the good habits roll, which I thought was great. So we've, we've got to release ourselves from the, from the yoke of self-blame, self-recrimination, 
And the only way to do that is really understand how this works and, and move forward with the principles, in my opinion. Exactly. Otherwise, you're fighting yourself. Constantly. And, and you feel like, so, so if you don't know that habits are not conscious, you feel like it's just, you have one motive, and then you have another motive, and you don't know which to own. But yeah. the end result is self-blame. And it's amazing that in surveys of people who are overweight, that even though they may have tried to lose weight, as you say, like Mark Twain, tried to quit smoking hundreds of times, they still think that they're low in willpower. Yes. They don't have self-control. And that's not, that, that, that's not relevant. Yeah. Any of us can do it, just like in Michelle's four-year-olds can do it. Yeah. Not eat that marshmallow. If the situation is set up so that it's working to your benefit. And I really think that, I mean, along with the just do it framework, um, Americans have had a uh, reluctance to organize our broader lifestyle in a way that we know is healthier for us. We've had a reluctance to institute policies that would help people be more productive, be healthier, be happier, because we feel like it's a bit of the nanny state, it limits people's options, freedom of choice. Right. But you don't need to limit you just need to make the healthy choices easier than easy. they are right now. Yeah. yeah. If people have easy choices, they're still making choices. But if they're if it's easy to choose something healthy to eat instead of fried food or fast food, if it's just as cheap, um, then you're going to see a shift in people's choices people's lifestyles yeah and you know the the couple of examples are so obvious i mean and the the, the epidemic of obesity in this country suggests that it's really not just a willpower problem what it's it really not, is not is a personal issue at all at all it's it's a grocery store that's lined all over the place with hyper stimulating foods i mean i i i struggle when I see a chocolate covered donut, because I love chocolate covered donuts, all right? So, you know, just you walk through the grocery stores. I mean, I actually assiduously avoid the, you know, the chocolate, you know, the peanut butter, the chocolate peanut butter covered grams because I'm, I'm so tempted by them, you know? So I've got a habit in the grocery store of, of staying away from those things, you know? And, and they, they just leave my mind then, you know? So, but it really gets at the, you know, the, the tragedy of this, of this guilt that people feel around around this process. All right, so we want to develop a habit. How long does it take? How many repetitions does it take? And how do we integrate rewards into the development of a habit? And I'd love for you to cover a little bit of the dopamine thing and the and the uncertainty and the reward processing error and that. So have at it and kind of tell us how it works when we form a habit. So, so this is something that um, popular popular thinking is relatively accurate with, mm -hmm. because 
forming a habit takes repetition. Now they don't have the right number of repetitions because um, there is no right number. Habits are a learning system. So they are a way of forming associations between contexts and responses. Where you are, who you're with, time of day, and what you just did to get a reward. Very complicated things just take longer to learn than simpler things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so there isn't a magic number. But rewards are important for habit formation, and they're important in a couple of ways. One is you're just going to repeat a behavior more often if you <laughs> like doing it. So you're much more likely to form a habit if the behavior is in some, some way enjoyable than if it's not. Then you have to struggle and make yourself, and, and that's just not easy. Um, none of us do that well. But the second reason why rewards are important is, as you said, it has to do with the neurotransmitters that are involved in habit formation, and dopamine is one of them. And we think of dopamine as sort of the feel-good chemical. Well, neuroscientists have shown it does many things. One of the things it does is it helps connect information in memory context and responses to help to form habits. But it works very briefly. We're talking on the level of seconds right. before dopamine is dissipated, it's not doing its work anymore. And that has implications for the kinds of rewards that are useful for forming habits. So you need a reward that occurs when you perform the behavior because that's when your brain is going to be connecting where you are, who you're with, with the behavior that got the reward. Right, right. So many of us think, well, okay, if I go to the gym often enough, if I study often enough, then I'll give myself a reward at the end of the month and I'll start forming a habit that way. It doesn't work that way. Nope. It's too far removed. It has mm -hmm. to be immediate. And one question I often get is, so what if I hate to exercise? Mm -hmm. I hate vegetables. I can't stand studying. What do I do? Well, what you do then is you figure out a way to make it more rewarding. And my example is, in my own life, is I used to be a runner. And I just loved going out early in the morning running outside, didn't matter the weather. It was just, felt liberating to me. Great way to start the day. And I really looked forward to that, but you know, you get older and fine. Mm -hmm. um, so I bought myself an elliptical because it gives you the same kind of cardio. So I thought I might like it the same way, but it is the most boring thing in the world. It is, it is. horrible. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't make myself do it until I figured out when I work out on the elliptical, I can read trashy novels. I can mm -hmm. watch stupid TV shows that I wouldn't normally have time to do. And as soon as I figured that out, it became fun because it was associated then with that reward. And I enjoyed right. it. And right. it's actually quite a habit for me now. I'm happy to work out every day on the elliptical. <laughs> You get, you get some free free fun time. Yeah. yeah. 
And then the same thing is true. I got a Peloton. I have an elliptical and a Peloton, and I've got a, a TV and the whole nine yards with the elliptical. But with the Peloton, you get the reward of the instructors, and they, you know, they track everything. So I mean, it's all built into it, and it works. It, yeah. it really works. It really works. It does. It's amazing how easy it is to trick ourselves. <laughs> and so, so you asked also about um, uncertain rewards, right? Well. Uncertain rewards form habits much faster than standard rewards. And you can think of it like a slot machine. And it's why people continually put money into slot machines. But this is actually part of many reward systems. So social media, why are people so why do they find it so easy to form social media habits? Well, it, it's like a slot machine. It's a scroll. So mm -hmm. you're scrolling through and you don't know what you're going to see next. You're going to you see a bunch of really boring stuff. And then, wow, you learn something really interesting about somebody that you didn't know. And so then you read another bunch of boring stuff and then you hit something else interesting. It's set up to provide those sort of intermittent rewards. And that's one of the reasons why people really get stuck using social media is that it has that intermittent reward feature. Yeah, yeah, just like a slot machine. So one of the criticisms that some people might make about habit formation and having your environmental context rigged as much as possible to allow habits to flourish is that it's okay. It's a boring lifestyle, right? Everything is just running according to protocol and you get up in the morning and you do the same damn things all day long and you come home. All right. But you posit, and I totally believe and agree with this, that habits uh, give us freedom, real freedom. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? If your life is perfect and you're finding it boring, all I can say is congratulations. Yes. You see something that most people haven't. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. But most people still struggle with their habits. And the, the point is that habits are sort of the infrastructure behind what we want to be constant in our lives. They can be that. Mm -hmm. And so most really successful writers, they have writing habits that allow them to keep producing on a regular basis. So they don't have to get up in the morning and ask themselves, do I want to do this? How much am I going to write today? Where am I going to write? They just get there. Now, the writing isn't always great, as you know. But <laughs> so the decision making burden is gone. Exactly. You have streamlined that part so that you can put the effort into the thing. What am I going to write? How am I going to write it? The, you can put the effort into forming the words, phrases, that you're not wasting it on actually getting yourself there, yeah. doing the writing. So, so that's what I think a well-organized life can give us is it gives us that infrastructure that allows us then to move beyond the day-to-day -day struggle and focus more on 
what we want to accomplish, being creative, enjoying our family, our kids, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. creating meals that are fun. They're not a struggle because all of the basic components are already there. One of the things I did in writing this book, this is the one really fun thing, is I got to go up to Napa Valley to the Culinary Institute of America. And I... Oh boy, <laughs> that sounds like a great time. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually shadowed a couple of beginning chefs for a week to see how they learned to set up a kitchen. And the French call this mise en place, which is everything in its place. And this is something that beginning chefs have to learn, just like we have to learn about our own behavior, mm -hmm. is you don't just jump in and start cooking. And that's what all of them wanted to do. They just wanted to right. start making right. stuff. Just like when we make a decision to change our behavior, we just want to get in there and do it. But they, their instructors forced them to set up the kitchen first so that it was easy. They wouldn't forget ingredients. They wouldn't have mismeasured. They wouldn't have to keep running around trying to find things when they're in the middle of the recipe. It made cooking seamless in the same way that your life, your writing, all the kinds of repeated activities that are part of everyday life, bill paying, all those things get sort of handled automatically and you don't have to struggle with them anymore. That's the goal. It should give you the mental space, time, emotional ability to enjoy and to create. It, it keeps your mental bandwidth focused on what you want to do instead of struggling to do what you don't want to do. Exactly. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. And, you know, I think a beautiful analogy for that is uh, actually operating. You know, when we operate, you know, we start out learning the foundations. It's almost like a miss, as you say, mise en place. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but, you know, we set up the table, we learn how to sew, we learn how to, you know, load the needle holder, all those little things. And eventually those things all become habit and you're not even thinking about any of that stuff. What you are able to think about is the conduct of the operation then because your mental resources are free. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. And I find that's true with research as well. Mm -hmm. That once you have the basic structures down, you know where you're gonna write, you know how to use the data analytic programs, you, um, yes, things become streamlined and you can actually focus on the important parts. So now, and I just wanna, you talked about rewards briefly, but I wanna emphasize what I think is one key point about rewards. They're critical for the initiation of habit development, but what role do they play in habit maintenance? Well, the whole idea with habits is that they are cued by the environments that they're in that you're in. So doesn't the reward doesn't even have to be there. Right. Habits are not outcome focused. They are context focused mm -hmm. on the precipitators of the action, not the consequences of it. And we did a kind of a cute study to <laughs> demonstrate this in a movie theater 
Um, this is great. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> we brought participants. Well, <laughs> participants had shown up because they wanted to see a movie. It was part of the regular showing. And we, we showed them movie trailers and we, we asked them for their um, reactions to the movie trailers. And supposedly as a thank you for their reactions, for giving us their, their evaluations, we gave them a box of popcorn. Half of our participants got stale popcorn, which was really stale. It talking is about really stale here. Yes. Not just in, like one hour old. We're talking about like a week or something, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. It was a week <laughs> in a plastic bag in our lab room. So it was semi-popcorn. Um, and the other group got fresh popcorn that we had just popped. And we measured how much people ate. So we coded the, the boxes, we collected them at the end, we measured how much people ate. And we asked them whether they typically ate popcorn in the movie theater or not. Did they have a habit to do so? So the people who didn't have a habit to eat popcorn who only ate it occasionally in the movie theater, they ate a lot of the fresh popcorn and they didn't eat much of the stale, which is what you'd expect a rational person to do, right? Mm -hmm. But people who had strong habits to eat popcorn in the movie theater, they ate the same amount, whether it was fresh or stale. No and reward. No reward here except gummy, no reward. <laughs> dreadful popcorn getting stuck in your teeth. <laughs> exactly. And the hilarious thing was that we also asked them how much they liked the popcorn. And there was no difference among the strong and weak habit folks. So the strong habit folks were telling us, I hate this stuff. And they were eating it because they were in the context where they normally eat popcorn. They were holding a popcorn box in their hand and the movie was running. It's just what they do. And it shows you the power of these associations and how we run on autopilot with these things, not even realizing what we're doing so much of the time. Exactly. Yeah. I think you used a number, was it 43% of our lives are run on habit roughly? Yeah. That was one of the first studies we did was following people and beeping them once an hour to figure out what they were doing and thinking. And we found that 43% of the time, they're just repeating what they've done in the past. And they're mostly thinking about something else. So they're not even thinking about what they're doing. They're just automatically doing what they've done before. Yeah. So about 43% of the time, people are running off automatically. Yeah. yeah. Not much thought going on. <clears throat> well, let's look at a couple of examples of the kind of setting up a habit. And I, I think one of the ones that you go through that's, so there's, there's simple habits like, oh, I'm going to brush my teeth. Well, in my case, you know, I've got bad joints, so I take uh, uh, glucosamine chondroitin. I have it set in my closet. You know, the pill bottle is there with my with glucosamine. And so I see it when I come in to get dressed. Therefore, I remember to take it. And it just all happens automatically. I've got this exact sequence in the morning. But let's say we want to have the fam. We, we don't eat together as a family. And, uh, you know, as a father, I've decided, okay, we're going to eat together as a family. We're going to create a new habit here. What's, what's the process? That's a complicated one. It is because it involves other people's behavior too. Right. So you not only want to form a habit for yourself, you want to form a habit for everybody else. 
And I had teenagers. I can tell you how popular that kind of thing is. When parents spring it on their kids, it's, um, it generates a lot of resistance. So expect people not to want to do this to begin with. I mean, you just have to expect to get some pushback on yeah. it. But your goal is to try to help make this into a habit. So the idea would be to make it rewarding for everyone. <laughs> what I used to do with my kids when I wanted to go on a hike and my kids now, I mean, they're grown, they absolutely love hiking. I can't keep up with them. But when they were little, they thought that was just awful. So I would invite along their friends. And if other kids are along, it's much more fun. There you go. And so inviting other kids to dinner, that mm -hmm. might work. Mm -hmm. Always having their favorite meals on those nights and not others, mm -hmm. that can help to work. Um, having something interesting to discuss that they're really focused on, whether it's sports or fat fashion or um, social media, whatever it is, making it fun for them is going to make it much more likely that it will turn into a habit. So you can use these habit principles to even help change groups behavior. And I do think that doing it consistently, so at the same time, same maybe one day a week, um, at having family dinner makes it easier for everyone and it sets it up as more of a habitual pattern so that people just come to expect it might take six months before they quit hating you. But after that, they may just come to expect that Tuesday night is family dinner night. So I don't do anything else that night. I just come home. Yeah, that we ate dinner together almost every night. Even, you know, when I was a practicing surgeon, they'd wait for me. And of course, they'd whine and complain about the late nights and that. But uh, you know, that habit probably was one of the most uh, profound things as a family that we did in terms of staying connected to each other. And, mm -hmm. and but the, uh, it just illustrates a beautiful point about the rewards don't need to keep coming. Once the habit's established, then everybody's expectations are similar and it just happens. Yes. The rewards don't need to keep coming. It's good if they're at least intermittent still, so they still kind of like you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I wanted to ask you about that relative to romantic relationships, too, and not getting too uh, cemented into the routine, if you will. Yeah. So there was a very smart psychologist, Ellen Burshide, who was an expert on close relationships. She recognized that if you just do the same things over and over again, even if they're really positive, that people habituate. So you can think of there as being sort of two components of habit. One is, as you repeat a behavior, the tendency to repeat it in the future increases, right? Your habit strengthens. Yep. But as you repeat a behavior, your experience of it and your emotional reaction to it decreases. And that's the normal sort of 
movement toward homeostasis right in all organisms that we have highs we have lows and we have um, physiological and psychological mechanisms that bring us back to stasis <laughs> that works against us in close relationships with our partners because all of the good things we do for them they get used to them so if you're always buying your spouse partner girlfriend boyfriend flowers that's yeah. not going to be special after no. a while no. you have to find something new and different and it's even better if you can find something new and different that that you get to share with each other and actually learn something new about each other that's a um that's a real bonus that you can then develop new habits around and mm -hmm. new experiences you're learning with them you know and it goes to show you the power of, of knowing about how dopamine works because those unexpected surprises those things they release dopamine and it, it it is the spice of life so to speak so habits are the basement but we can live in the upstairs and and still do things that you know make things hum up there bring them both yeah. together yeah yeah, yeah. um <clears throat> all right so habit discontinuity uh, I want to just relate us. I was literally on the phone with a cardiac surgeon uh, yesterday uh, uh, who I'd never met before, but he told me about his experience of working in one city uh, in a very kind of toxic environment and, you know, florid burnout and the, the, the way the practice was structured, everything. It had become habitual, all these factors that were very negative forces. And as finally, his wife uh, said to him, I think you should quit. This is, this is destroying you and it's not good for our relationship. So he quit. I mean, he just literally quit and they moved to another state, a warmer state, and it changed their life, their relationship. Uh, it just opened up a whole new world to them. He's working less, you know, all the, all the elements for his kids, everything dramatically changed. And that's a beautiful example of what I would call habit discontinuity. Can you talk about that a little bit and how this plays out? Yeah. So when our contexts change, the cues that activate old habits change. And we can make decisions then in ways that are hard to do when we stay in the same context. And all of the old habits are continually coming to mind. And it's just easier to act on them than to say, no, I'm going to do something different. So it's a lovely story about this surgeon who made a decision to change. That's hard. That's really yeah. hard for yeah, most gift, of us to do. The gift of desperation, I think, is what it was. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You have to get to a really low point sometimes before you can do that and before your family will support that because it's disruptive to everyone. But we all have more minor experiences of change when we move house start a new job start a new relationship um, have a new baby all of these things force us they're disruptions they force us into new contexts and we're no longer constrained by the old cues and we may benefit from that not necessarily mm -hmm. right? Could go either way. They have to do something different yeah. in order to benefit from it. 
Um, but so, so it can be a window of opportunity, but you can also impose all of your old stuff back in the new context too. Right. <laughs> so. You just bring your bags with you and park them in the new environment. Yeah. Yeah. But be yeah. aware that it's a chance to do something new and different. Well, that, that's certainly what I did. Uh, again, sort of knowing that it was habit-based, but when I got out of Hazelin after the addiction treatment, I mean, I, I realized, I mean, I changed the context of everything, you know, and my work, everything. And it, you know, that allowed me, a, that gave me a clean slate. But as you said, now you're into the heavy lifting of the prefrontal cortex, conscious deliberation, decision-making, you know, and that's, that's hard work day in, day out until you get those new habits established. You know, it's a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah. Yep. Well, this is, this has been great. Um, oh, I, what other, in terms of discontinuity, um, I, I love this phrase that you use. It can be a process of creative destruction. <laughs> yes. And I liken it to kind of a forest fire. It allows a new forest to grow up, uh, you know, and this happens with businesses, you know, their things happen and then they're forced to reinvent themselves. So I just wanted to throw that out there because that is a, a good way of thinking about it. Well, this has been great. And I have one final sort of philosophical question for you, Wendy. Uh, you know, I was always a big believer in free will, you know, that we have total agency over our lives. And, and uh, you know, it's really just a matter of, you know, your own initiative and et cetera. And I've really come full circle on that personally. I'm, I'm not convinced that we have free will in any way, shape or form. Uh, this is debatable among people. Uh, but where, where do you stand on that with every, all the research you've done over the 30 years looking into human behavior and habits? I don't think there's an easy answer to that one because... <laughs> no, it's I a hard think, question. <laughs> I think that for some behaviors, decisions, um, we do have free will in the sense that we can make decisions in favor or against but they're short-term, one-off type decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we have free will, <laughs> I think it's in those contexts where we aren't repeating, we're making a decision. In contexts where we have to just repeat behaviors, we have often something that some psychologists call a free won't. Mm. I can decide not to do something. So I can most of the time decide not to engage in habitual behavior. So that automatic response that springs to mind, if I take the time, if I have the effort, if I have the motivation, I can control it in the short run. But it's going to spring back again. Yeah, it will <laughs> spring future. back. And yeah. so, yes, so that's, that's why some people say we have a free won't not a free will. And we always have a decision initially for what to repeat. So we do have some control. I can do this now. I might be able to repeat it in the future. In that sense, we have a bit of free will. And I agree completely with that. But the part that and this is a little bit of a tangent is that I, I feel like there's this cauldron of neurologic activity that is informing even why I make a particular decision that is not available to me to understand. And, and hence, yeah. And so, yes, I have agency over the apparent choices before me that the environment has provided, 
-hmm. you know, uh, but you know, why am I making these decisions? Well, we can conjure up, you know, oh yeah, well, I made it because, but really, if you look back down the path under the neurologic hood, there's a myriad of things that are going into that process, you know, that are, we're not aware of anyway. So free will, a topic for another day. <laughs> <laughs> and we need a philosopher here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Wood, thank you so much for, you know, taking the time to uh, be on the Resilient Surgeon podcast. And, and if, if people want to reach out to you or learn more about your work, where, where would you direct them to? Um, LinkedIn is a good place. I also have a, I post on Twitter a reasonable amount at Prof. Oh, Wendy Wood. Um, okay. So both of those are good places to connect. And, and, and you also have a website I do about website. the good habits, bad habits too, right? Yep. Yeah, on good habits, yeah. bad habits. And I also have a university website where if people are more interested in the scientific articles, I try to make them available there to the extent I can. Yeah, they are available on, on your uh, on your website there. So you can click on many of the articles if, if you're interested. So, well, again, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure and an honor. Oh, my pleasure completely. Thank you. <laughs> this has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.